We are examining the question whether it is appropriate for a Christian, in light of the full and exclusive and all-sufficient nature of the atonement that we have in Christ, to continually confess our sins. And we've discovered that this is something that we need to have a different framework for. It's not a matter of whether or not a Christian should confess their sins. Of course we should. The question is, is how and why? And we're moving away then from the old institutional, liturgical form of confessing sin in which it was really as the danger of becoming just a rote exercise in which we simply uh, recite the liturgy, we receive absolution from the clergyman, and then we're in good shape for another week as we begin on Sunday afternoon or Monday to again to accumulate moral guilt for which we have to get back to the confessional on Sunday and get rid of or go down to the altar on Sunday night if you're in a Baptist church or uh, your quiet time uh, during the week, uh, somehow to be continually confessing known sins, seeking to clear your conscience um, and having the grounds of your um, conscience cleared by means of confession. Now, we have discovered wonderfully, gloriously, that that is not John's intent in 1 John 1, 9, when we read, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We've discovered that that is actually a descriptive phrase as opposed to a prescriptive. In other words, John is not prescribing confession of sins there. He's describing just what we do because the word confession is in the present tense. It is something we do continually, regularly, but it is done because we have a settled disposition. We have a settled mindset in which we agree with God, which again is that word confession in that verse uh, is a translation of the Greek word homologeo, meaning to say the same thing as another. And of course, within the context, it is to say the same thing as God about the nature and reality of sins, including our own sins. So in that respect, we are never not confessing our sins. We are always confessing our sins. And so today we want to uh, wrap up our, our study on in this part one of this series on confession of sin by examining again what God does say about sin. Because to confess is to agree with God. We want to just take a time out and make sure that we are, in fact, saying the same things about sin as God does. That we're not drawing our understanding and what we say about sin from uh, the culture or from sociology or from philosophy or psychology or even, perhaps, from our religious tradition. I read recently of a man who was uh, very apt to preach always about how sinful people are. And somebody referred to him as, Chef, boy, are we sinful. <laughs> and while that may be kind of uh, comedic and um, a satire, uh, it is a sad, tragic reality that uh, many Christians are sin-haunted. 
And it's because they've been told to be. They've been, they think that somehow they please God if they are constantly scraping their psyche, looking for known sins to confess or to uh, somehow it pleases God to have his children walking around talking about how depraved they are all the time. Uh, see, these are the half-truths that we have to be careful to hold up to the light of Scripture and be free from. The truth sets us free. It doesn't burden us. The truth sets us free. It doesn't condemn us. The truth sets us free. It draws us ever closer to the conformity to the image of Christ and not to Adam. So, yes, man is fallen. Yes, man is sinful. Yes, man needs to repent of sins. But the outcome, the outcome of that is ever-increasing conformity to Christ after the model and image of his holiness and his obedience. That's the hope we have. There's no hope in walking around constantly flagellating ourselves emotionally, mentally, verbally, or even perhaps even physically about how sinful we are all the time. So, so but we do want to say the same thing that God says about sin. And we did that uh, recently in an episode where we talked about the fact that John is writing in 1 John 2, 1 through 2, so that we might not sin, that we may not sin, 1 John 2, 1. And that we discovered the wondrous reality that for the first time in our lives, in Christ, because we are in Christ, because we have been born of God, because God has, under the new covenant, written his law and his uh, on our hearts and minds and placed his spirit within us and caused us to keep his ways, to keep his decrees, we do not have to sin. We looked at Romans 6, uh, 16, 17, and 18, in which we're told that we were once slaves to sin, but now we are slaves to righteousness. So John is writing that we may not sin is a profound thing. In a fallen world where sin clearly reigns, in the lives, in the minds, in the practices of the average uh, unbeliever. To be able to say, I'm writing to you so that you may not sin, is a profound point of deliverance itself. And then we discovered that John does give us this antidote. If anyone does sin, we are not to turn in on ourselves. We are not to look it to ourselves. We are instead to look to Christ as our advocate with the Father. He is the righteous one. He is the satisfaction for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for those of the whole world. And then we looked at very similar language in 1 John 2.12, in which John again refers to his readers as little children. Uh, he refers to the fact that uh, he wants us, he's writing to us so that we will know that our sins are forgiven. Similar language to what we just read in 1 John 2, 1 through 2, except at verse 12 he says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. And we discover that there's the great reality for every believer and is to understand, to know, meaning firsthand experiential knowledge, that your sins are forgiven. 
There's nothing healthy, there's nothing good, there's nothing biblical about being a sin-haunted Christian. If you have fallen in your past, if you've gone astray since your baptism, if you have a, a besetting sin that continues to plague you, it's important that you confess that to other people and ask for help and, and, and pray for deliverance, pray for the strength to overcome it. But what you don't have to do is try to um, uh, do penance by blaming and beating up on, your, on yourself. Self-loathing never redeems anything. So, uh, one, in fact, one of the most important things you can do for your spiritual development, John is saying here, is to understand that your sins are forgiven you. He's saying, my little children... I am writing to you, uh, see that's again, I'm writing to you because your sins have been forgiven you for his namesake. There you go. Your forgiveness is yours. The forgiveness of your sins is yours for his namesake. Not because of anything you've done. Not because of any sacraments or acts of penance that you've done. Your sins are forgiven. It's an aorist tense. It's done. It's, it's, it's an accomplished fact. And, of course, that falls into line with the verses that in Hebrews that initially launched this study, Hebrews 10, 14, and 17, by way of reminder, for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So we are sanctified and we are being sanctified. And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Let me put it this way. God is not nearly as mindful of your sins as you are in many cases. If you're rather neurotic about it, if you're obsessing about it, you're approaching it from the wrong angle. God has dealt with the sin problem. He has dealt with it effectively and permanently in the death and resurrection of his son. So the sin problem has been dealt with. And by grace alone, through faith alone, we are drawn into that redemptive work so that by the application work of the Holy Spirit, we are now free from the law of sin and death and free to walk in the spirit of life, the laws of, of life, uh, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus is what I'm trying to say. So we have those two points. And so today I just want to wrap up with a couple of other points that we find in the letter uh, of First John. So this is not, a, of course, an exhaustive study about what God says about sin. But since we're in First John, it would be uh, remiss of us to not at least pause and consider what God does say about sin in this letter itself. So to do that, we'll start with First John chapter 3, verses 4 through 9. Let me read those verses to you. He says, quote, Everyone who practices sin also does lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or has come to know him. The one who sins is of the devil, because the devil sins from the beginning. Everyone who has been born of God does not sin, because his seed is in him. He, he cannot sin, because he has been born of God. 
That's 1 John 3, verses 4 through 9. A little bit longer of a text, but full of wonderful truth. And the truth is, God says that sin is lawlessness. Well, what do we mean by lawlessness? It's not referring necessarily only to the Mosaic law. Sin is lawlessness, meaning I can do whatever I want to do, whenever I want to do it, however I want to do it, with whomever I want to do it, and no one has any right to tell me not to do it, including God. That's the operative definition of lawlessness. People you might have known in the past who simply feel no restraint. They, they have no respect for yours or anyone else's boundaries, whether, whether it's in society or within interpersonal relationships. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is self-will run riot. And then it goes on to say, and you know that he was manifested, Jesus was manifested, the incarnation. God sent his son into the world. The word the eternal word became flesh in order to take away sins. Now this is big news if you've been being if you've been told by the Gnostics in the first century that their sin is not even a reality. That sin isn't a matter of, of concern. It's, it's, they denied sin altogether. But rather, John is saying, no, no, sin sin's very real. I mean you'd you have to be deaf, dumb, and blind to not acknowledge the reality that something is definitely wrong within humanity. And the Bible calls that sin. And you know that he, Jesus, was manifested in order to take away sins. So two things immediately leap out to us. God is saying that sin is lawlessness. Sin is self-will run riot. And we should say the same thing about sin, as God says. And then we should also say that his son was sent into the world, that he, the eternal son, the word became flesh in order to take away sins. And in him, there is no sin. Think of that. In Christ, in his humanity, as well as his deity, of course, there is no sin. And so then John carries the natural, logical implications of that by saying no one who abides in him sins. No one who abides in him sins. Sin is, is not something that we long to do, we want to do. It is not something that is a practice of ours. It is, let me put it this way, it is no longer normative for you to sin if you are in Christ. Because there's no sin in him. And those who are in him, then, do not sin. No one who sins has seen him or has come know, to know him. Now, be careful here. Because a surface reading of that last phrase will lead you to believe that John is endorsing or expecting some kind of sinless perfection out of the believer. And he's already conceded in 1 John 2, 1 through 2, that, that we do sin. It's never God's will that we sin. It's always destructive. And undealt with will lead always to death. And so there's nothing attractive about sin. We no longer live in the Adamic nature. We no longer live driven 
by the flesh and by sin. Our will is no longer in bondage to a fallen nature. Rather, we don't have to sin anymore. We just learned that, didn't we? So he's talking about here a a uh, a practice, a way of life, a way of thinking again about sin. He's not saying if you sin, then it's clear evidence that you don't know God. Quite on the contrary. The sinner sins, and the Christian may sin as well. The difference is the Christian feels it, feels the violation, feels the grief of that, and the desire, the zeal even, to be free of it and to be done with it once and for all, to make a final amendment of life. So, everyone who has been born of God does not sin. Now, what he's saying there is that, again, it's not normative for those who have been born of the Spirit to sin. It is contrary to the new nature that is promised us under the new covenant, that God will take away the heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh that he'll place his spirit within you. He'll write his law on his on our hearts and our minds so that it becomes no longer a matter of nature for us to sin. And indeed, it's a conflict. It's a, a, a con, something contradictory to our nature for us to sin. That's what he's saying here. Everyone who's been born of God does not habitually sin because his seed is in him and he cannot sin. Because he has been born of God. There's only two people in the world, two classes of people in the world. Those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. Those who are still dead in their trespasses and sins. And those who have been raised to new life or born of God. To be born of God is to receive a new nature. To become a partaker in the divine nature. 2 Peter 1.4 So the most important thing to remember here is that God is saying to you as a believer and what you must begin to say to yourself and to those around you that think of yourself as someone who no longer has to sin. You see that sin is lawlessness. Self will run riot. And now as a child of God in Christ, your will is to do the Father's will. Your will is to walk in obedience. You long to walk in obedience. You long to do God's will. You subject your will to God's will. And thus prove yourself to be a true child of God. No one who habitually, continually, without repentance sins is of God. Simple put. Simply stated. So that's what God says. That's another thing that God says about sin that we need to integrate into our own thinking. That's another thing that God says about sin that we need to start saying the same thing as. So what does God say about sin here? In 1 John 3, 4 through 9, he says that sin is self-will run riot. He says that his son was sent into the world to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. And those who are in him do not habitually, chronically, unrepentedly continue in sin. Everyone who does that is of the devil. That's what the devil does. See, this is a matter of nature, folks. This is the beautiful thing and the sobering reality that either you are partakers in the divine nature because you are in Christ 
So sin becomes an alien thing to you. You you no longer are attracted to sin. And if you sin, it's a conflict of your nature, and you grieve it, you have zeal to make amends, and you're done with it. But those who may profess to be in Christ and continually, chronically, habitually sin are proving themselves not to be born of God, but are of the devil. That's what God says, not me. That's what the Apostle says, 1 John 3, 4-9. through 9. Well, let's look at one more. And that will come in this controversial and sometimes very scary verse in 1 John chapter 5, where he seems to be speaking here of an unforgivable sin. So this would be something for us to, to pause for a moment and make sure we listen very carefully. I know of very few Christians who have not suffered, at least momentarily, from this thought that they had committed the unforgivable sin. Many of us have, and many of us, especially early in our Christian life, because we had yet to be instructed, we had yet to be nurtured spiritually, uh, were subject to that kind of thinking. But let's look at the text and see what John is really saying here. 1 John 5, 16-18. Uh, He says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sin, not leading to death. So that's the first thing. There is sin. Christians, tragically, as we just said, despite being the conflict with their new nature, will sin. We are in a now and not yet status. We are now the children of God. But it has not yet been fully realized what we will be. And while we're in that not yet state, we are going to be subject to stumbling from time to time. We will violate another person. We will say or do something that's harsher um, um, uh, offending to another person. And we will need to reconcile that. So there is sin not leading to death. There is a sin, however, leading to death. I do not say he should make requests for this. All unrighteousness is sin, he says, and there is a sin not leading to death. We know that no one who has been born of God sins. He's repeating what he said earlier in chapter 3. But he who, has, he who was begotten of God keeps him and the evil one does not touch him. So, what is this sin leading to death? Well, this is where context always saves us from our own thinking. When you are studying the scripture, there's two things you can do. You can apply your own thinking, your own cultural standards, your own, uh, perhaps your own uh, neurosis, your own psychological and and mental weaknesses to the text and come up with something that could be harmful to you. Or you can look to the context of the scripture itself. Scripture always interprets scripture. We don't have to become biblical scholars. We don't have to become Greek or Hebrew scholars. We do need, though, to practice the discipline of always reading the text within its context. And within the historical and literary and grammatical context of 1 John what would be the sin leading unto death? That's the question. 
Well, we've discovered that the Gnostics, these early first century heretics, who weren't yet called Gnostics, we've come to call them that later, were those who denied the humanity of Christ. Remember, the Gnostics said that there was um, nothing good about the material world at all, including the human body. So they denied that Jesus was had a human body. They denied the apostolic proclamation of the true incarnation with all of its redeeming implications. That is the sin leading to death. So this is very important to understand. The sin leading to death is the denial of the biblical Christ. The denial of who Christ is as is revealed within the text of Scripture, within the Gospels, within the writings of the Apostles, and with the Old Testament prophecies that he fulfilled. And of course, singular in its importance is his humanity. Listen, if Christ did not become man, he could not redeem man. That's the point. Remember, he was manifested in order to take away sins. Well, if he did never did, in fact, take on a human flesh, if he never did become fully human, though unblemished humanity, then he was not able to offer himself as our high priest in a sacrifice, an all-sufficient, exclusive, unique sacrifice, permanent sacrifice for sins. And if that's the case, then we are walking in a sin that's going to lead to death. Let me put it another way. The proclamation of the gospel, the proclamation of the truth of the gospel leads to life. The proclamation of the gospel of the true incarnation of Jesus Christ with all its redeeming applications leads you and I to life. John wrote his gospel, in fact, that we might have life. So he's writing to us that we, too, in his letters, that we might have life. The reverse implication of that being that if we deny the apostolic proclamation of the true incarnation with all of its redeeming applications and implications, then we are sinning a sin leading to death. Now, he tells us we ought not pray for that. In other words, such teaching leads to death and not spiritual enlightenment as the false prophets taught. To deny the humanity of Christ is to deny the atonement, and to deny the atonement is to sin leading to death. So the believer is not to have fellowship with such teachers, nor to pray for them in the same manner as we would for a fellow believer. Prayer is an essential part of fellowship, isn't it? Just like caring for one another, very practical with our our human needs and caring for the poor and caring for for the weak and the widow and the orphan, for spending time together listening and hearing the word of God proclaimed and studying the Bible together. All these things that we do in fellowship... Uh, at the heart of that is our praying together. And he's telling us we ought not to pray for those 
We ought not to pray for that sin leading to death. We ought not lend our prayers to its propagation. We ought not pray with or for those who are teaching such a thing. Why would we want their well-being? Why would we add the blessing of our prayer to those who are teaching the denial of Christ's humanity? So the believer is not to have fellowship with such teachers, nor to pray for them in the same way as we would a fellow believer. In other words, we must not normalize and affirm false teaching by associating with them by prayer. Now, let me just give you a couple other texts, too, which is really interesting, because this is something that's come up in the Old Testament, in the, in the prophets. For instance, Jeremiah 7, 16, Israel had reached a point that God told Jeremiah, As for you, do not pray for this people, and do not lift up a cry of lamentation or prayer for them, and do not intercede with me, for I am not hearing you. God goes on to say in verse 17, Are you not seeing what they are doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, and the fathers make the fire burn, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. Heinous, unspeakable idolatry. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods in order to provoke me. So God says, don't pray for them. Quit praying for them. Quit praying for their well-being. Quit praying for them to do well. And we always pray for people. We are interceding for them so that they can experience God's blessing and God's best. Why would we pray for those who are denying the very nature of Christ and the atoning sacrifice that he made on our behalf? And then, of course, this is very similar to the Second John verse 10 and 11, 11, excuse me, Second John, verse 10, when he says, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, this teaching being the apostolic teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. Let me read that again. If anyone comes to you and does not bring the apostolic teaching, that's what he's talking about there, do not receive him into your house. Do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. Do not receive these teachers. Do not even give them a greeting. And do not pray with them or for them. In other words, mark and avoid them altogether. Only God can deal with them effectively, not us. We can't talk anybody out of their false teaching. What we can do is we can continue to proclaim the truth, we can continue to live the truth, and we can continue to pray for each other within community, within the apostolic community, in such a way that it models for them what the truth looks like versus what their lie looks like. Because one thing we can always count on, beloved, is that lies destroy. And lying theology will always be destructive theology. And hopefully, hopefully, by us pulling our hands back, see, this is like a form of excommunication. By pulling our hands back, by refusing to even pray for them, 
they will begin to suffer the consequences of their false teaching and come to their senses. So let me close then with one last text on this point. Because this is, this is a serious verse. But this is what God says about the sin leading to death. We are not to fellowship with it. Anyone who denies the biblical Christ is not to be fellowshiped with. And he says here, but refuse, in 2 Timothy 2, 23, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. And the Lord's slave must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps, if perhaps, God may give them repentance. See, we can't make anybody repent, either by loving them or by um, debating with them. We can only bring them to repentance by prayer, maybe. And that, even then, is not for their well-being. It's not about fellowship prayer. It's maybe intercession on their behalf that they would come to repentance. If perhaps God may give them repentance, leading to the full knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. End quote. That's 2 Timothy 2, 23-26. So, what does God say about sin? In these last two verses, God, we discover that God says that it is lawlessness. Self-will run riot. There's nothing pretty. It's sin, lawlessness. I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, with whomever I want, and no one can tell me not to, including God. And I'm telling you, in a democracy like we live in, where we cherish our freedom, it is really tempting sometimes to behave that way, isn't it? No one can tell me what to do. And if we're not careful, we come to take that beyond tyranny and into our relationship with God as well. That's dangerous stuff. And God said that his son was sent into the world to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Anyone who habitually and chronically sins is not born of God. That's what God says. And we should say the same thing. Anyone who habitually, chronically sins and enjoys it is of the devil not of God, no matter how much they may protest and confess themselves to be a Christian. And then finally, if we see our brothers sinning, we ought to pray for them. We're not out to judge them. We're not out to uh, go one up on them, but we ought to pray for them. Unless, of course, it is a sin leading to death, and that sin is leading to death that we've already agreed now is the sin of denying the very incarnation of Christ, with all of its redeeming implications. If the word of God was not made flesh, then he was not able to redeem us. He was not able to take away our sins, and we are still in our sins. And we are indeed the most miserable of people. But the good news is that the incarnation is true. That he did come into the world. He was manifested to take away our sins. Remember John the Baptist and his proclamation at the river. 
when he said, Behold the Lamb of God, who taketh away the sins of the world. What a glorious Savior we have. Well, we've come to now understand that confession has to do not so much with just confessing particular known sins or in some kind of a liturgical ritual way, but bringing our very thoughts and our thinking, our understanding, and what we say about sin to be in line with what God says about sin. That's the true ethic and true lifestyle of the child of God. And so in the next section then, in part two of this study, we're going to continue to look at this word confess, this homologeo in its forms, homologei, for example, and how it means that we are to also say the same thing about what God says about his son. So we've learned to say the same thing that God says about sin. Now, in the coming episodes, we're going to discover what God says based upon the same letter, 1 John, what God says about his son, so that, in order that, we may ensure that we are also saying the same thing that God says about his son. Now, this is very timely. For not only today, but in the coming months and years, you're going to be offered all kinds of alternative Christs through the media, through the culture, through the uh, films and stories like, for instance, The Chosen. That is simply an alternative view of Christ being offered to you that's apart and beyond the biblical text. We want our minds to be renewed by bringing them into line with what God says about his son. And that will be the task that we take on from here on in. Well, we'll pause there. May the Lord strengthen you in all that we've studied, in all that we're learning here. May you come to rejoice in His in your liberation, your deliverance from religiosity and, and all the uh, false teaching that flows around us like a mighty river. And we can stand afloat because we stand in Christ. Amen.